I'm going to start tonight in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, notice it says that we were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. That is the central theme of Christianity. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesians chapter 1, it says in verse 6, God has made us accepted in the beloved in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. As I said, the precious blood of Jesus is the central theme of, of Christianity. It's the foundation for our redemption. I uh, thought to show you a list of all the things that Paul wrote in his letters concerning the blood of Christ and then show you what Peter wrote. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to recommend that you look that up for yourself if you're interested. One of the things that, um, that baffles me, well... Uh, well, it baffles me. It just, it's something I do not understand on any level or in any terms whatsoever. Is that church growth models tell you. They've gotten things down to a science trying to figure out what people like, what people don't like, and what makes the church grow and things like that. And one of the things that they have identified over the last number of years, few years anyway, is that churches that teach on the blood of Jesus don't grow. And, of course, their, their reasoning behind that or their research behind that identifies that people get uncomfortable when you talk about blood. And so they'll tell you, if you want to grow your church, don't talk about the blood of Jesus. But, folks, if we don't have the blood of Jesus, what have we got? I mean, that is the most foundational of all the principles of Christianity. It is the foundation whereby we are saved and redeemed. Now, I'm going to turn over to uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 is uh, written, of course, to the Jews. There's some dispute about who wrote it. Whoever wrote it had extensive knowledge about not only the history of the Jews, but the Jewish rituals, the sacrifices, and so forth. Well, that was training that Peter didn't have. So Peter can't be the author. It's been suggested by some that Timothy or Titus or some of the others that traveled with Paul may have been the, the authors of the book of Hebrews, the book written to the Jews. But they're Gentiles. They wouldn't have the kind of knowledge that is put forth in such detail as someone with a Jewish background or Jewish history. So it leaves us with the best guess, in my thinking, based on these and other, other reasons, it leaves us with the best guess of Paul being the author now, if Paul was the author, we know that he died, was martyred, his head was, he was beheaded uh, during Nero's rule when Nero was the emperor of Rome. And we know that he died around 64 or 65 AD. So if Paul was the author of this letter to the, to the Hebrews, then it had to be before that. 
Now, what that means is the Jews are still offering sacrifices in the temple because the temple wasn't destroyed until 70 A.D. So the, the ritual sacrifices and the, uh, the, other identify, the other components of Judaism that are identified in the book of Hebrews to show the, the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, those things are still going on. Now put yourself in the Jews' position. I know we give them a hard time because we know that they were the ones primarily, that, uh, meaning the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, were the primary ones that were behind the persecution at least the early persecution of the church. You remember Paul persecuted the church. He was standing by when uh, Stephen was stoned and he consented to his death. When he was converted, when he met Jesus, he was on the road to Damascus, headed to, to Syria, of which Damascus was the capital city, the chief city. And he's going there to put Christians in jail or have them killed too. So we give them a hard time and realize that they were behind a lot of the trouble and certainly behind most of the trouble that Paul identifies as taking place during his ministry when he'd go from city to city or region to region establishing churches. It was always the Jewish council that was sending people after Paul left and trying to stir things up and get people to keep the law of Moses. But think about it from their standpoint. That's the only thing they know. They've grown up offering ritual sacrifices. They were taught by their parents, this is how you do it, and it's an every year thing, and there's this sacrifice for this occasion. There's this sacrifice for this occasion. There are uh, established dates, like the Day of Atonement, when the whole of Israel offers up an atonement, a sacrifice for their sins. And now comes Jesus. And Jesus fulfills. We know through the letters that Paul wrote to us and what the Holy Ghost saved for us, We know that Jesus was there to fulfill the law. We know that Jesus was there to complete everything, perfect everything about the old covenant that was imperfect. And where the old covenant failed, he was to bring in a new covenant that not only couldn't fail, but was more than adequate to cover all the failures or all the the things that the old covenant couldn't do. But we accept those things because we're saved. If we weren't saved, if we didn't have the knowledge of what the Bible says or the the experience of hearing the preaching about why Jesus went to the cross and what he did for us when he was there, what would we believe? You remember Jesus upbraided his disciples after he was raised from the dead because they didn't believe what he said about being raised again. They had no clue why he went to the cross. They thought that it was just a political move, which by and large it was. They thought that it was just the Jewish council and the Jewish leaders trying to get rid of somebody that was more popular than them. And that's exactly what happened. So they attached no real spiritual meaning to it until after the fact, after they were born again, when Jesus began to explain some things. And then over the years, the Holy Ghost revealed to the church what Jesus did and why he did it. So when the Jews come into the region of Galatia, after Paul had left, he'd been there once, established a church, left people, elders in charge of the church, and then the Jews came in behind them, behind he and his company. Sometime later, 
and gummed up everything in the church. They taught that Jesus wasn't enough. They didn't teach that you shouldn't believe in Jesus or shouldn't accept him as the Messiah. But even then, they thought that the ritual sacrifices had to continue. And so they continued them. So Paul, assuming Paul was the author, and assuming we've got this fit into place in the way that I described it, assuming that's true, which the best evidence that I've seen or read about gives me a pretty high level of confidence that that's exactly what took place. You'll have to decide for yourself, I guess. But when Paul begins to talk to the Hebrews, talk to the Jews, he understands where they're coming from. And so he builds an argument based on everything they know is true. I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 8. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. He's been talking about the high priest, the work of the high priest. He's been talking about Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek and things pertaining to that. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. I want you to see that phrase, the true tabernacle. He's not talking about the temple. He's not talking about the Jewish temple. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. He was of the wrong tribe. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, and the priesthood came through Levi, the tribe of Levi. If, we are, if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. Please notice that phrase. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou makest all things according to the pattern showed unto thee in the mount. The word pattern means copy. So when it talks about the true tabernacle and when it talks about Jesus not being a priest here on the earth or he, if he were on the earth he wouldn't be a priest. When it's talking about these things it's saying that God showed Moses the plans. He identified the plans for the building of the tabernacle. And of course the tabernacle he's talking about there is the tabernacle in the wilderness. And he says that it's an example and a shadow of heavenly things. That's an indication that there's a tabernacle in heaven. That there's a tabernacle in heaven. Now let me ask you this. Why in the world would there be a tabernacle in heaven? A tabernacle in heaven would, or any tabernacle is a place, anything related to God anyway, is a place where sacrifices are made. Why would there be a place in heaven for a sacrifice to be made? Anybody in heaven need to sacrifice for them? Interesting thought, huh? But now, verse 6, But now hath he, Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant, talking about Abraham's covenant with God, codified by the law of Moses and so forth, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. 
Paul is simply saying, if the old covenant rituals and sacrifices, which began in the tabernacle of the wilderness and continued even to that day in the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple. Paul is saying if there wasn't a problem with that first covenant, if it wasn't incomplete, then why would there be a need for a second covenant? So right away he's telling people that are looking at this from the standpoint of we keep the law of Moses, we make the ritual sacrifices, why do we need Jesus? Well, here's why you need Jesus. Because the first covenant, no matter how much you keep it or how well you do in keeping it, the first covenant can't take, of the, take care of or pay the price for the most important things. For finding fault, God's identifying the fault of the first covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the law of Moses. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God and they will be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. In that he saith, a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxed old is ready to vanish away. In other words, he says this. He says the fault that he found with the, new, with the old covenant and the reason for the new covenant or the reason that there needed to be a new covenant is because God intends, and, and Paul is quoting from Jeremiah 31 there for most of that passage, God wants a covenant that establishes his presence and his life in you. I'll write their laws in their, my laws in their heart. I will be to them a God and they will be unto me a people. Paul is telling the Jews that God's ultimate aim, even as told by the prophets of old, God's ultimate aim is to live inside you. And killing a bull or a goat won't make that happen. There's no way for it to come to pass through that and that alone. So Paul is simply trying to tell the people, even God said that this old covenant was passed away. Even God said that there would be a new covenant, a better covenant established on better promises. And that's the thing to look for. Now Paul's hope, I'm sure, and the Holy Ghost that inspired him, the hope is that people will see, well, that makes sense. Offering bulls and goats on the Day of Atonement each year covers our sins for a year. But that doesn't bring the life of God on the inside of you. Paul's trying to make the point, and he'll continue on as we go into chapter 9. He'll make the point that there's only one thing that can bring the life of God on, unto you, and that's the shedding of Jesus' blood. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Do you see that? Worldly just means of the earth. An earthly sanctuary or tabernacle. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. We call that the holy place. 
And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, we know of, know of it as the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. He's talking about the stone tablets that God gave Moses. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. He's talking about cannot give the details of. I think what he's saying, there's two ways you can look at it. One is, I don't have the details. Or the other is, the details don't pertain to the truth of what I'm trying to get across at this point. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. That's where they kept the candlestick lit, kept everything burning. They exchanged the table, uh, the showbread on top of the table. And so in this, they were accomplishing the service of God. But unto the second, meaning the, the holy of holies, but into the second went the high priest alone. Only he could go in once every year and not without blood. Only way you could come to that inner place, the place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt, was if the high priest was following the commands that were given Moses about how these things would be done, and he had to have blood with him. But unto the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not made manifest, not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was still standing, or yet standing, which was a figure or an example for the time when present, then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Now, folks, Paul is trying to make a point by contrasting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the thing that he says about the Old Covenant after he refers to the priests and their service to God, he said that only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And he better have blood with him. He better have the blood of the lamb or goat or bull or whatever they used that was without spot or blemish that had been certified by the priesthood as a worthy sacrifice. He better have that with him. Now it's not that God gets mad at you if you don't come the right way. It's that flesh cannot stand in the presence of God. Remember God told Moses in Exodus chapter 33 when Moses said, Lord, show me your face. He said, no man can see me and live. Well, that would include the high priest too then, wouldn't it? So that's why they had to have blood. The blood in his hands or the blood that he carried into the Holy of Holies signified that he has as worthy an offering to cover his own sins, his own unrighteousness, as was possible to have. But notice even then, the old covenant, the first covenant, did not make perfect things pertaining to the conscience. This word conscience is, is interesting because in the, uh, in the Greek language, the word that's used for conscience means moral consciousness. Moral consciousness. Now Paul is going to tell us by the Holy Ghost, the great shortfall or the great failure, impossibility of the first covenant. 
Moral consciousness very simply means this. Anything that the Bible talks about being moral has to do with the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, sin versus righteousness. And so Paul is saying, you know as well as I do, that this pertains to everybody even up to the high priest, that the first covenant, no matter how successful they are in making it according to the plans that God gave Moses, carrying out every little detail about the way things were to to be done, it could never do away with man's consciousness of right and wrong, good and evil, sin and righteousness in his own life. Now, I want to stop there long enough. I'm going to try not to get ahead of myself, but I want to stop here long enough to, to refer to something that is inferred in what Paul is saying. Remember, he said if the first covenant was efficient or sufficient to take care of all mankind's needs, there'd be no reason to send Jesus for a second covenant. But no matter how effective, successful, or by the book, the high priest or anybody else carried out God's plan concerning the sacrifices, they never lost the sense of their own guilt and shame before God. Does that not infer that the second covenant is supposed to cover that up? Does that not infer that the second covenant should make good where the first covenant failed? Folks, I've got to tell you something. I believe... Well, Brother Hagin used to say all the time, the greatest need for the church, for the Christian, the modern-day Christian, is to renew his mind to the Word. There's nobody that can take exception to that. That has to be absolutely true. But a part of the renewing of the mind that doesn't seem to me to get much attention, or enough attention maybe, is the understanding that there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And it has nothing to do with you or me. It has everything to do with what Jesus offered on our behalf. And it only has to do with what Jesus offered on our behalf. No wonder the Bible says that we've been saved by the precious blood of Jesus. Let's keep going. Which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. The time of reformation is being spoken of is when the covenants change. When the old covenant and its faults and its uh, impurities is replaced by one that is faultless and complete. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say not of this building neither by the blood of bulls and of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained an eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant sacrifices, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh. He's telling us what the Old Covenant did. The Old Covenant purified the flesh. But we've already seen that it couldn't do anything about the conscience. Couldn't do anything about man's moral consciousness or his consciousness of his own unrighteousness. But if the the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, and it did for a one-year period of time, how much more 
shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your consciences. To purge means to clean. Here's that word conscious again. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience, your moral consciousness. In other words, what you see about yourself, right or wrong, good or evil, sinful and unrighteous, or purified and made righteous by the blood of Jesus. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Part of those dead works concerning uh, made in service to the living God that Paul is talking about here is the sacrifice. He's already identified and pointed out what everybody under the old covenant knew. And that was it doesn't, get away, doesn't do away with the offering of the day of atonement sacrifice or any other sacrifice made. Doesn't do away with our knowledge that we are unrighteous. We may have hit the lottery, the, the eternal lottery by God being willing to overlook or cover over, which is what the word atonement means, to cover over our sins for a one-year period of time. But that never really changed anybody. It made them able to come before God knowing that their sins were covered. But it didn't make anybody new. It didn't make anybody less sinful than they were before the atonement was made. Didn't make anybody more righteous than they were before the atonement was made. But the new covenant is to purge, notice what he identifies, purge our conscience, purge our moral consciousness. Let's say it this way. The blood of Jesus is intended to change how you see yourself. And I don't think as many of us as should grasp a hold of that. And for this cause, verse 15, and for this cause he is the mediator of, a new, of the New Testament or covenant that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament or a covenant is, there must also of necessity be the death, uh, death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. The new covenant couldn't come into being before Jesus died on the cross. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people... According to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by law, by the law, purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. You see what he's saying? He's saying everything has to be purified by blood. But the blood of bulls and goats is only temporary. It only satisfies a temporary purpose. And still, even after being done correctly, still leaves you with the same sense or moral consciousness of your sin. It was therefore necessary 
Verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Now the patterns of the things in heaven are the things he just talked about were in the tabernacle here on the earth. But notice he calls them patterns again. They're copies. They're things that were instructed by God to Moses to create and to build and to fashion and to prepare here on the earth. But the picture that he got from them about how they were supposed to look and how they would be built or made or fashioned, he must have seen something in heaven. God must have shown him. Well, the Bible says God showed him. So he saw the picture, whether he was caught up into heaven and had a vision and or had a vision. I'm not in a position to say that. But he saw it somehow. God showed it to him in some form. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves... And again, he's talking about all the elements of the tabernacle, the candlestick, the table of showbread, the showbread itself, and then behind the second veil into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, and all the things that it contained. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, he's saying the things in heaven, the heavenly things in the tabernacle or temple in heaven had to be purified with a better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, examples of the real, in other words. He says it again. This is about the fifth time where he talks about the tabernacle here that Moses was directed to fashion was a copy of something in heaven. Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, more than once, as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I'm going to keep reading into chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. He keeps pointing it out. This ritual sacrifice and the ordinances and everything that the Jews are holding so strongly to, the things that in their mind, in their thinking, or in their understanding, or maybe in their lack of understanding, they're holding on to and and rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and as our sacrifice. Paul is making an ironclad argument that since the old covenant wasn't perfect, God said that he would start a new covenant that was perfect. You know yourselves the old covenant won't satisfy you 
as far as righteousness before God is concerned. Paul is inching them closer and closer to accepting that Jesus is the Messiah and what Jesus said we should do to worship God should be followed rather than the Old Testament ritual, including the sacrifices. If the sacrifices which were offered year by year continually make the comers therefore perfect, why then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. He says it again. He's saying again, if the blood of bulls and goats, if the Old Testament sacrifice and the uh, high priest going in once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice for your sins, if that was complete, then why do we still see ourselves? Now he's talking about them. Hopefully he's not talking to us. He's saying, why would you still see yourselves as unrighteous? Why would you still have the moral consciousness of being a sinner? You did everything right. You've obeyed the, God, the commandment of God. Yet you still see yourselves. He's talking to unsaved Jews. You still see yourselves as unrighteous. Again, that's an inference, folks. The inference is that the new covenant, the, the second covenant as he refers to here, or the new covenant established upon better promises, a better covenant established upon better promises. It infers in, in specific and undeniable terms. Our moral consciousness should be an understanding of righteousness, not a seeing ourselves as sinful. I'm not sure there are many Christians that do. Certainly not enough. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. That's the Old Testament, Old Covenant. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It was sufficient to cover over your sins for one year at a time, but not to take them away. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. He's talking on behalf of Jesus now. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither had pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. He's saying when Jesus said these things and provided us understanding about God, God never did like the sacrifices. God never did want bulls and goats to be offered in place of man. He never was looking for any sacrifice to be made. And Jesus said, I'm come. Not because God likes sacrifices, but I'm come to do the will of God here on the earth. Paul is saying when Jesus said and did that, that was the signal, the proof that the second covenant was come and that the first had been done away or fulfilled. Then he said, I'll read verse 9 again. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which, by the which will, Jesus said, I came to do the will of God. 
Paul says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, what's he talking about being sanctified? Is he talking about just being sanctified for the, by, uh, in the flesh? Nope. Remember we read before, I don't remember which verse it was, but we read before that the Old Testament sacrifice, ritual sacrifice, the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer, that served to purify, purify the flesh. But it had no impact on the inside of man. It had no impact on his moral compass. He knew that he was a sinner. He still knew that he was unrighteous. The sacrifice that he made, the Old Testament or Old Covenant sacrifice that he made, didn't do one thing to change who he was in his own eyes. So when the Bible talks about this, the second covenant, a better covenant established on better promises, it says that sacrifice of Jesus brings forth the will of God that we are all sanctified, not just flesh, but all the way. Made new creatures in Christ Jesus. We become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, talking about Jesus, after that he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he said before, he's saying, remember what was prophesied by Jeremiah. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now when remission of sin, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. You remember when Jesus was raised from the dead, Mary and Martha were concerned about his body and they went to the, t to the uh, tomb to finish the, the preparations that had to be halted or interrupted because of the Passover. You remember Jesus saw her? Remember Jesus saw Mary? She didn't recognize who he was, so his appearance was obviously altered some way or another. But she thought he was the gardener. So she said, have you taken his body somewhere? Tell me and I'll attend to it. And then he spoke her name. And her, For I have not yet ascended to my father and your father. His own blood in the heavenly holy of holies. To say, we know that, and to tell a few, to tell the others of his disciples. Went into the heavenly holy of holies. It's not the place of worship. The to me at least, I don't know if you think like I do about these things. But it's an astonishing and astounding thought to me to realize that Adam's sin reached into and changed heaven. Before Adam was on the earth, or before Adam, while Adam had been created and before he fell, which indicates, the Bible indicates, gives us hints that that was generations after he was first created. Maybe hundreds of years. 
before he fell and before he sinned. Once he sinned, now all of a sudden there has to be a place in heaven for sacrifice. Now all of a sudden there has to be a place in heaven. And that was brought about by Adam's sin. Now I can't think of any other thing. I can't think of any other instance. I can't think of any other scripture where the Bible says anything we do here on the earth changes heaven. Everything I see in the scripture inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us or that Jesus told us himself there were a lot of things that he said that we should do here on the earth because that's the will of God in heaven. The fulfilling of anything and everything we do here on the earth is a fulfillment of God's will as having been made plain in heavenly places. But Adam's sin changed heaven. That's how significant it was. But Jesus' offering of his own blood changed heaven too. Let's keep reading. Because all these things are true, because we've been purified, because our conscience has been purged or cleansed, implying that we should never think of ourselves as anything except the righteousness of God. And I think one of the hardest things for us to grasp, one of the hardest things for us to accept is that personal behavior, individual sin, does not change who you are. It does not change your nature. Now granted, righteous people should live righteously, shouldn't they? Righteous people should give attention to and, and focus their attention on doing things that are pleasing to God rather than things that change that. Because if it could, if your actions were sufficient to take you out of the family of God, to make you unrighteous again, then your actions would be stronger than the blood of Jesus. And that can't be true. Ever. Under any circumstances. So seeing that we're purged, seeing that our conscience is purged from these things, verse 19, having therefore, understanding the, the argument that Paul has made, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, not sacrifices, not day of atonement. Remember who he's talking to. He's not talking to us. He's talking to the Jews that are still trying to hang on to the law of Moses and his ritual. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Of course, that's Jesus. What should we do because these things are true, Paul? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Here's that moral consciousness again. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What are we supposed to have faith in? What are we supposed to believe in? Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said we're justified through faith in his blood. Through faith in his blood. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now we talk about holding fast the profession of our faith to receive the things that Jesus purchased for us as a part of redemption, like provision, like healing, and, and so forth. 
And that's certainly true. The Bible talks about fighting the good fight of faith. It talks about standing against the enemy who uses time and, and brings wrong thoughts and tries to condemn us. Well, those are certainly worthy of holding fast the profession of our faith. But how many of us exercise, consciously exercise faith in the blood of Jesus? Are we as focused on the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice that was made for us as we should be? I think the answer in most cases, in most people's lives, would have to be no. And I think, because of the things that we just read, I think or I believe that much of the sin consciousness that believers, children of God, still hold is because they do not see the value of the blood of Jesus like God does. E.W. Kenyon made a statement in one of his books. I believe it's in the book on the blood covenant. He said this. He said, if you learn to value the blood of Jesus like God values it, then the question of righteousness versus sin will never hold you back again. Folks, do you realize that I'm not advocating for people to sin, but I found that, that we do anyway, whether you advocate it or not. But I want you to know that every time we sin, every time we step out of God's love or the love of God in us toward others, not love from God, you can't step out of that. But every faith in the blood of Jesus at that moment is an eternal proof that the blood of Jesus is greater than anything that we do, positive or negative, righteous or unrighteous. Everything is built on the blood of Jesus. So what should we do? Paul says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Paul says, being justified by faith in his blood, we should come boldly before our heavenly father. Our boldness is a result of the assurance that we've been purged from all unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus. Folks, I know there are things about this that I don't see yet. But there are things that I know in my heart that we will see. And when we see them, our Christian walk is going to be completely different. It'll be altered. It'll be changed. We'll have an understanding that it's the work of God in us and not just us. We'll quit letting our, our thoughts and our opinions and our viewpoint of ourselves hold us back because in that sense we do exactly what the ten spies coming back from the land of Canaan did they let what they saw about themselves dictate what they would have by the hand of God we certainly should not make that mistake but too many times we do too many times we're letting our consciousness of right and wrong concerning our own actions our consciousness of sin versus righteousness, good works versus evil works, we let those things hold us back from the very thing that Jesus came to provide for us. And that was a relationship, an unbreakable relationship 
with our Father God. And that was the only thing that Jesus ever said was the source of his power or the things that he did, the miracles and the healings and all the things that took place in his ministry. He said, I only do what my Father does. I only say what my Father says. I came not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. Jesus knew exactly who he was. The thought of sin, the thought of unrighteousness never occurred to him. Now granted, he didn't have the experience with sin that we do before we're born again. But the Bible says his blood has overcome even that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. <coughs> Precious blood. Cleansing blood. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being willing to pour yourself out for us. And Father, because of the blood of Jesus, we are the righteous, righteousness of God in him. Because of the blood of Jesus, he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes, we were healed. Because of the blood of Jesus, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Because of the blood of Jesus, we have eternal access into your presence. Thank you, Father, for the blood of Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.